Welcome to Wallachia, previously in Flowers of Transylvania. As a girl, Karina was the joy of the village. By custom, any of the girls turning 18 that year might have been chosen to be the year's spring princess, but there was little question that the council would choose Karina. They were just making their plans to meet after dinner so they could pick the flowers for tomorrow's crown when they saw a rider coming down the road. It was Dominic. Coming here personally tomorrow to collect the town's tribute. I've just passed Karina didn't remember Count Dracula ever coming here himself. So entranced was she that Karina didn't hear the clatter of hooves coming from behind her, nor the turning of her that from nowhere burst a carriage pulled by coal-black horses. It bore directly for Karina and stopped abruptly. Its driver, clad all in black, swept down and extended a strong arm, which, in a grip like steel, hoisted her from the ground and into the cabin of the Kalesh. The princess of springtime had been taken. Chapter 2. The Lord Who Receives Many Guests Corina awoke in the fanciest room she'd ever seen. It had tall windows with diamond panes through which she could see the stars' fading light. She found herself lying, still in the chemise and apron she'd worn the night before, on a four-poster bed, surrounded by airy curtains that had not been drawn. She had been wearing opinchen, a common type of oval-shaped sandal tied with leather straps, which she now saw had been placed neatly on the floor not far from the bed. The linen stockings her feet had been wrapped in were still on. Presently, she heard a peculiar chirp, and lifting her head to see what had made such a noise, saw what she took at first to be a butterfly, but, getting closer, she saw it was a dark moth with honey-colored markings. It was clinging to one of the bed curtains, and allowed her to get remarkably close before taking flight. As it did, Corina noticed a shape on its body that looked vaguely like a human skull. As soon as the moth disappeared, Corina realized she wasn't alone in the room. The feeling was odd. A moment ago, she would have said she was sure no one else was there. Now, fully awake, she heard the words, I must apologize for the experience of the last evening. It was never my intention to frighten you. Still coming out of her trance, Corina sat upright to see a tall, thin man with waxen skin standing halfway across the room. He had a thin nose and a heavy mustache and ears with tips that seemed to be pointed. He was clad in black from head to foot and wore a dark cloak, which seemed to flow of its own accord as he made a deep bow. I am Count Dracula. Welcome to my house. It is my hope that we can extend to you every possible comfort. I am sure you will have many questions concerning why you have been brought here, and it would be my preference to answer them myself, but I am afraid I must now attend to other matters. Indicating a bell on a table near where he stood, he said, When you are feeling ready, please alert my servants and a lady's maid will see to your every need. With that, the Count left. Nothing in her life had ever prepared Karina to handle this sort of situation. She was a resourceful young woman. She could calm down injured livestock with the touch of a hand. She could repair pieces of farm equipment and make ingenious improvements to them that made them easier for her father to use. She usually knew just what to suggest when a friend had a problem, something that would help solve the situation in a way that made them feel good about the result. But she'd never traveled more than a day's ride from her home. Nothing had ever happened to her that was entirely against her will. If she'd gone somewhere, it was because she had walked or ridden there. Finding herself now in a strange room, with a servant ready to tend to her at the ring of a bell, was far beyond her experience. She rose from the bed and went to the window. Most of the houses in her village didn't have glass windows, just frames with shutters. This one seemed to be ancient, with a vast rippled pane. Looking up, she saw the sun's red glow light the terrain from behind the mountains. Looking down, she saw that the building she was now inside, was it the Count's castle, was built into a great valley surrounded by jagged mountains. Pressing her nose to the glass, she wasn't able to see the ground below her. The structure's stone wall seemed to be built onto a sheer rock face that extended down into the mist. 
a castle, or a fortress. The room she had found herself in was appointed for comfort. Beside the four-poster was a great couch upholstered in lush velvet. Opening wardrobe, she found many fancy dresses that seemed to be her size. A wash basin had been filled with fresh water, but there was no mirror there, nor in the changing area. She splashed some water on her face, then went to the door and listened, but couldn't make anything out. Too afraid to try the doorknob, she retreated to a chair by a great fireplace. Above it hung a painting of several girls playing in a flower garden. After staring into the fire for some time, Corina decided that she might as well ring the bell and see what came next. The sun had now risen above the mountains, and the confusion had faded, replaced by curiosity. Corina rang the bell, and, before she'd even put it down, a maid not much older than she appeared at the door. Good morning, Lady Corina. Let me help you get dressed, and then we'll have some breakfast for you. She led Corina to the wardrobe, selected a green gown, helped Corina dress, then brushed her dark hair back and clipped it with an emerald pin. It made the white cotton dress she'd have worn tonight for the spring feast look like, well, what it was, a peasant's attempt to look fancy. Corina wished she had a mirror to see it all put together. She considered questions she might ask the maid. What's going on? Why have I been brought here? Will I be kept long? She settled on. When you came in, how did you know my name? I only just arrived last night. How did you have dresses ready that would fit me? Oh, my dear, the good count wants all his guests to feel comfortable. All his guests, asked Karina. No reply came. She was led out of the room, down a hall, and into a parlor where a feast had been laid out. Rolls with butter and preserves, tea, porridge, eggs, all waiting on the table just for her. She sat down, the maid pushed in her chair, and another appeared to pour tea. The maid who dressed her withdrew, but Corina turned and said, Before you go, thank you. What is your name? She said, Marta, and with a curtsy, left. Corina looked at the breakfast items available to her and selected the peculiar red fruit that had been cut in half. Inside, the flesh was light, and it was filled with small, dark berries. Corina picked one out, took a bite, and was met with a surprise burst of tart juice. She was still poking at the strange fruit when a voice from behind her said, It's a pomegranate. Corina started, then stood. A woman of perhaps forty had come in. She wore a red dress, as elegant as the one Corina had been given. She introduced herself. Elisabetta, extending a hand, then said, Welcome to Castle Dracula. Corina took her hand. She had allowed herself to become lost in the room. The clothes, the servant, the food. As she stood there, holding the stranger's hand in this strange place, whatever had been holding her together vanished, and the tears welled up in her eyes. I, hello, what's, were the only words she could say. She stood frozen until one of the maids helped her back into her chair and gave her a cup of warm tea to hold. It's all a shock, I know. I'll try to explain, said Elisabetta. Don't worry. The Count's man from the country will have explained everything to your family. Elisabetta pulled up a chair and sat next to Corina, but didn't eat. Corina had taken a sip of tea and was setting the cup back down on the saucer when she realized who Elisabetta meant. The Count's man, Dominic, said Corina, almost knocking the cup over. Ah, you know him. Yes, I suppose that's who he sent. Good. Well, our host, the Count, is dissatisfied with our country's place in the world. He wants more from his people, from Transylvania. The rest of the world is reaching out, you see. The British, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, all spreading across the ocean. New lands are being discovered every year. Count Dracula wants to start a colony, asked Karina. The warm tea was starting to help. Not at all, my apologies. That is what the other nations of the world are doing. They are so excited about new opportunities and new discoveries about exploration that they've lost sight of their homes. What matters is your land. This land beyond the forest has power. This is why the Count has little interest in which flag currently flies in which city. 
He's content to work with the Habsburgs or the Turks or the Hungarians because he knows that the people here, their blood, is his strength. Give the Count a chance, and he'll spend an entire night praising the strength of the proud Zekeles, whose blood is made of the strongest of all races who've tried to conquer these lands. It is his belief that in the crucible of these mountains and forests only the best could have survived. It is his wish to see Transylvania thrive. What does he want from me? asked Karina. To educate you. To bring you out of the small village and into the wider world. To lift all the smaller villages up so that Transylvania's strength can be felt. Your little village chose you to be its princess. He wants to teach you so that you can go back to your village and teach them. A strong Transylvania requires all its people, not just the men, to understand science and philosophy and history. But why the coach at night? The Count is not one to waste time once he's made up his mind. He'd learned of your local custom to pick the finest amongst you to honor at your fertility festival, and decided to offer you a place here. Why wait when he could have you back here and rested by morning? In her head, Corina had made another list of questions. How did the Count know about our festival? How did he know I was the spring princess? But just then, a maid came in with some extra place settings, followed closely by three more young women around her age. Elisabetta rose. Ah, Corina, allow me to introduce Diana, Irina, and Freya. Each girl gave a curtsy. Corina stood and tried to mimic the girl's poise, then returned to her seat after the others had taken their places at the table. One of the girls, Freya, asked in a Saxon accent, Where are you from, Corina? She had just taken a bite of bread and, taking a breath to speak, inhaled a few crumbs which set off a coughing spell. After a moment and some more tea, she was able to respond. She wanted to ask if they'd all been abducted and brought here, but decided, especially with Elisabetta standing so near, that some caution regarding her host was prudent. Instead, she returned Freya's question and in turn learned each girl was from a different village in Transylvania. Once they had finished eating, Elisabetta led Corina and the other girls on a walk through the castle, explaining the importance of movement and exercise for the body. Back in the village, Corina's daily routine necessarily involved walking to get water, walking to tend to the animals or crops, walking to make deliveries to neighbors, in general just a lot of walking. So the way Elisabetta presented going on walks as a thing you'd have to do intentionally struck her as funny, but mostly Corina was simply overwhelmed by the castle. It was larger than she'd ever imagined possible. When she'd read about castles, she'd pictured towers and drawbridges and dungeons, but hadn't ever thought about the sheer number of rooms such a place might have. The bedroom where she'd awoken that morning was one of several in a row, and that was just in this wing of the castle. The room where she'd been served breakfast adjoined a larger dining room, next to which she found a library with bookshelves higher than she could reach along every wall. Next to that, yet another parlor, whose only purpose she'd later discover was for one to sit in during tea. Outside the lush appointments of these rooms, the castle grew much more austere. The hallways near her room were papered and featured landscape paintings and portraits. Those in the other parts of the castle were empty, cold stone. There were no gardens or fields to explore. Indeed, Corina didn't see any place where food might be grown at all, nor any evidence of livestock. Where were the chickens that laid the eggs she'd eaten this morning? What sort of plant did a pomegranate grow on, and where was it? From time to time in a person's life, she may hear a story that sparks a fire in her. Some bit of a tale that captures her imagination, ignites her passions, and stays with her. For Karina, this had been the story of Psyche and Cupid, told by a teacher a few years ago. Karina had been transfixed by the tale, retelling it to herself over and over through the years, imagining herself in the role of Psyche through her highs and lows. Psyche was a beautiful girl who had, as it so often goes in the myths, infuriated a goddess by being more beautiful than she, so she'd ordered Cupid to make Psyche fall in love with a monster by shooting her with one of his magic arrows. An oracle told her father to send her to the top of a mountain so the monster could come and make her his bride. Cupid flew up the mountain, but, upon finding her, fell in love with her at first sight and flew away. Thus, Psyche, alone on a cliffside, 
decided to throw herself off the edge of the cliff rather than be taken away. Cupid begged for help, and the west wind, Zephyr, lifted her up to safety. Zephyr carried Psyche to a beautiful, enchanted palace surrounded by lush gardens. Inside, she found a feast laid out. After eating, she found a warm bath had been drawn for her. She relaxed and played in the bubbles, and then a far-off voice invited her to come upstairs. It was Cupid, but he had to keep his identity a secret lest the gods discover that he had stolen Psyche away. He begged her never to ask who he was, and, accepting, she was allowed to visit him in his bedchamber, and the two made passionate love. Psyche lived in the palace for months, playing in the rose garden each day and visiting Cupid in the dark every night, never seeing her new husband. Eventually, she begged that her sisters be allowed to visit, and after feasting on the splendor Psyche had come to find herself in, they became jealous and convinced her that her mystery man must surely be the monster she had been promised to, and that she must unmask him. Creeping into his chamber with a lantern while he slept, she saw the nude form of Cupid for the first time. In the dark, she pricked herself in one of his arrows. Overcome by passion caused by the arrow's magic, Psyche flung herself at the sleeping god, but she overturned the lamp, scalding Cupid with hot oil. He awoke, realized he'd been discovered, and flew out of the window. The story went on with a grand set of tasks Psyche had to complete in order to find her lover again, sending her into Hades itself, but Karina's fantasies usually dwelled on the enchanted palace and midnight encounters. As Elisabetta led the girls through the castle, they came to a doorway bathed in bright sunlight. For a moment, Corina thought that surely this must be a garden, but, coming around the corner, she saw instead a great courtyard surrounded by the castle's walls. No roses. No enchanted servants. No fountain in the shape of nymphs playfully spitting water into sparkling pools. One great, gnarled tree grew in the center of the courtyard. A dozen crows perched in it and, seeing them, made threatening caws before flying off. Several gargoyle statues perched on tall plinths. Stone benches and walkways surrounded dark, manicured grass. The clash between her fantasy and the reality of her situation struck Corina Cole, but she continued to walk with her new companions. The castle seemed to be populated by some number of servants, but Corina never saw any other residents. The count had to be somewhere, but she wasn't told where and wasn't taken to wherever his rooms might be. At a few places she saw members of the count's guard, the Order of the Dragon, always in their dark, high-colored coats. From an embouchure in one of the outer walls she saw a few of the soldiers open the gates to admit a cart driven by several Romani. Perhaps they were the source of her breakfast's ingredients. As the tour concluded, they passed down a large passageway with windows overlooking a village of moderate size. The castle's height made it hard to see much, but she could make out carts moving back and forth. At one end of the village stood a small chapel, its steeple easy to make out against the backdrop. To the left of the chapel was an open patch of ground Corina thought was probably a graveyard. None of the other girls had said anything for several minutes when a loud bang startled them. They'd walked through a corridor overlooking a small courtyard. Five men were unloading boxes from a cart. One of them had started to move a crate, but had set it down on the edge of the wagon to help move a different box, and the crate had fallen loudly onto the stone floor, spilling its contents in the process. Two castle guards, who must have been standing nearby but out of Corina's line of sight, came into view to help with the mess. Turning at the sound, Corina recognized one of the men. It was Dominic. He looked up to see her standing on the walkway above. His mouth opened to say something when she saw his eyes dart to her chaperone, then back to her. He didn't quite shake his head, but the meeting was clear. Not here. Back in her room after the walk, Corina slumped down into one of the chairs, a thousand questions in her head. Was she a prisoner here? On the walk, she'd asked Elisabetta, how long will we be staying here? She'd replied, the Count has asked me to prepare a wide curriculum. Now that you've joined us, we'll be starting today. She'd wanted to ask if she'd be allowed to leave to see her family, or if they'd be able to come visit. 
but Lissa Betta strode ahead, indicating further questions were unwelcome. Other questions came. Would she be able to find a way to see Dominic? Could he help her escape? Did she want to escape? Was this her life now? After a time, a servant came to take her to dine with the other ladies. Then they were given some books to read, then tea, discussion of the books they'd read, dinner, then bed. The day was difficult to process, the horror of it papered over by civility, the other girls acting as if Dave's was just a part of life. After a time, a servant came to take her to dine with the other ladies. Then they were given some books to read, then tea, discussion of the books they'd read, dinner, then bed. The day was difficult to process, the horror of it papered over by civility, the other girls acting as if this were just a part of life. She wasn't sure if she was permitted to leave her room during her free time, but resolved to try at some point to see the other girls and find out what she could. Had they been taken from their homes in the same way? As she lay in bed, trying to make sense of it, feeling hollow, she heard a wolf begin to howl. It was joined by a haunting chorus of other wolves, and Corina wept until sleep came. Days passed, and it all started to become a routine. Breakfast, a walk, a rest, lunch, reading, tea, and so on. Slowly, she started to become something like friends with the other girls. She even started to enjoy the lessons. Life in the castle was nothing whatsoever like life in her village. She'd learned to read, but had never spent any considerable time reading actual books. She found she'd only known the most rudimentary facts about world history and affairs, and nothing of philosophy. Each night, she cried. She'd never spent a day away from one or the other of her parents. How were they managing things on the farm without her to fetch water, grind the grain, and do a hundred other things? As she lay in her four-poster bed, thinking all these things on their seventh night there, Corina saw something move in the dim glow of the starlight. A figure had come in through the door and was moving toward her bed. She hadn't drawn the curtains, and this shadow, pausing to look around the room in the dark, came closer. She was about to scream when a strong arm grasped her and pulled her to the edge of the bed. A hand wrapped itself around her mouth. Quiet, whispered a voice. I'm not supposed to be in this wing. I'll let you go, but you mustn't scream. A pause. Quiet as a butterfly, okay? Corina nodded and was released. Dominic, she gasped. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about everything. I promise I didn't know it would be you when we came to the village that day. I'm sorry I haven't been able to see you until now. The guards aren't allowed to be here, or even out of bed at night if we're not on duty. He released her, and Corina sat up. Realizing she was in her nightclothes, she made half a motion to cover up, then, instead, put her arms around Dominic's neck and kissed him. Oh, Dominic, I just don't understand any of this. I know, the Count has these plans. I'm sure they told you about it. I can't say more. Can you help me? I just want to go home. I can't think of how. It took me a week to figure out how to sneak over here. I think... I think you'll have to be here for now. But, said Dominic, I know how we can see each other. It was the first heartening thing Corina had heard in a week. All this time she felt alone. Now, she had Dominic. The room next to yours is empty. It has a balcony, and so does the room below it. I was just there, and I hit a rope under the sofa by the window. You should be able to climb down and into that room. No one's down there either. He told her how she could make her way through the castle's corridors to the place where the guards lived. There's a staircase that leads up to the ramparts and down to the ground floor. The third floor doorway leads to the guards' quarters so that we can easily get wherever we're needed in the castle quickly. It's really clever, actually. Anyway, you can't go into the hallway where we live. Another guard would hear you. My room has a wardrobe for my clothes and things. One day I dropped a button and it rolled behind it. I had to push it out of the way and hit my shoulder on one of the stones in the wall and it moved. It almost fell out of the wall. I took hold of it and it came away. The stone is only a finger width or two deep. And when it's in place, it looks like just the rest of the wall. Behind it, the entire wall, well, most of it, is hollow. It's tight, but a person can fit there, and it leads out into the staircase. It's a short crawl through the inside of the wall. 
Why would the wall be hollow? asked Karina. I don't know. This castle has all sorts of passages and tunnels through and under it. That whole part of the wall is false. On the other side, there's a set of shelves with spare torches and other supplies on it. It's like a bookcase, but it's only mounted to the wall on one side. You can't tell by looking at it, but one edge of it has a hinge, so it swings away from the wall easily like a door. There's a latch on the other side that keeps it in place. Once released, you can swing it away and get into the passage leading to my room. You can undo it from the inside if you know where to look, but it's dark in there. Corina took all this in, carefully memorizing all his directions. He told her what days he knew he'd be there, and they agreed she should come in three days' time. She wanted him to stay there and hold her and talk to her, but after just another minute, he said, I can't stay. Come. Three days. Okay? Dominic, said Corina, do you like it here, in this place? I have to go. Three days. Thank you for listening. Chapter 3, Day and Night in Castle Dracula, will be up in two weeks. You can follow Wallachia on Twitter at WallachiaNet. On the web, go to Wallachia.net or VampireBook.net. If you'd like to read Listen Ahead, you can download the Wallachia app for free from the iOS App Store. 